command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning again. I'm Brian. I'm the pastor here. I'd love to meet you if I haven't before. And we are starting a new sermon series that um, I'm really excited about. I hope you are too. Uh, And it's on core values. Maybe it sounds a little corporate, a little uh, banal for a church, but it's important because every organization, every institution has core values, whether they're written down anywhere or not. And so the leaders and I have spent a number of times together this summer uh, trying to identify what makes in-town in-town. What are the things that we will not negotiate on? What are the things that when someone comes and uh, interfaces with in-town, they hopefully will feel and see and also uh, have the right to expect? And so hopefully as we read these to you, we're going to unveil them one by one, you'll think, yeah, that makes sense. I've seen that. I've experienced that. And if you're new here, hopefully they will begin to explain for you some of the, the features uh, and the facets of our church that you encounter as you integrate. Um, and so let me just read this first one. Uh, this is core value number one, lead with love. Jesus led with love. This not only was a defining feature of his leadership, but love was his fundamental orientation to the world. In town exists to lead people into a transformative experience with the love of Jesus. Let me pray for us as we talk about this. Father, whether we are here out of habit, whether we're here as a last resort, our life is falling apart and maybe the church has something to say. If we're here believing, and we have believed for many years, if not decades, or we're here doubting, I pray that you would meet us that we would encounter the one who led with love. And we know that if we love you and if we love each other, it is because you have first loved us. And I pray that we would live out of that. In Jesus' name, amen. There is uh, an old Indian folk tale of an old man who sat along the Ganges River each and every morning to meditate and to pray. And one morning, after he was done with his meditations, he noticed that there was a scorpion that was in the water that was drowning. And so he felt compassion upon this animal, and he reached in to save the scorpion. And what happened? Anyone know? He got stung, because that's what scorpions do when you try to grab them. Well, he reached his hand back, and it was very painful, and a little trickle of blood And he waited a few moments and saw that the scorpion was still drowning, and he had compassion again, and he reached his hand to grab this scorpion to try and save it one more time, and it struck him again, and his hand is now inflamed, and he's in excruciating pain, and he hears from a bridge behind him, "'Oh, man, what's wrong with you? Only a fool would risk his life for the sake of an ugly, evil creature like that.'" Don't you know you could kill yourself trying to save that ungrateful scorpion? And the old man turned around and he furrowed his brow and he said, My friend, just because it's the scorpion's nature to sting, that doesn't change my nature to save. 
In this section of the Gospel of John, John slows down the narrative, and he gives the next nine chapters to this crucial week in Jesus' life. It's like the movie goes into slow motion, so you can really pay attention to what's happening. His final days of earthly ministry, that his nature to save, his enduring love leads him to a violent and grotesque death, a criminal's death, a slave's death. Now, he's probably anticipating, as he looks forward to this, his disciples' confusion, because let's face it, they haven't always put the pieces together as they should. And they, he knows that they're going to not understand, and so he gives the disciples an enduring image. In the ancient world, every city was into walkability because you had to walk everywhere. There was no Uber, there was no Max or streetcar, there were no cars, in fact. And so when guests would arrive for a banquet or a feast or a meal in this case, uh, they would arrive with filthy, disgusting feet from walking in the animal dung and the raw sewage that's flowing in the streets. And so imagine that, walking in with sandals into someone's home to have a meal and your feet smell, look like that. It's unsightly. And so an invited guest would sit down and the owner would have a slave come. And the guests would recline, they would relax, they would put their feet up, maybe have a glass of wine, sit there in comfort while a slave untied their sandals and then washed their feet. But here's the thing, it wasn't just any slave. A Jewish slave was not asked to do this, only Gentile slaves, the lowest of the low. It was such a demeaning task that only a slave, only a Gentile slave could do it. But here we see Jesus in the part that we didn't read of John 13, but hopefully a story that you're familiar with, and it doesn't take much imagination. But he takes off his outer garments, and he now has the dress of a slave. And he bends down, he stoops, and he washes his disciples' feet. And he's saying to them, as I approach death... If you're wondering what is going on, if you're confused, here's the image I want you to think back on. He's saying in bowing and washing their feet, this is who I am. This is my life's calling. This is what I'm all about. This is why I've come. Now, the disciples probably would have washed Jesus' feet had he asked, but It's unlikely they would have washed each other's because Luke tells us that the whole way into Jerusalem, this build-up to this event, they're squabbling, they're arguing, they're competing, they're wanting to be the greatest, they're wanting the promotion. They want to be assistant general manager rather than assistant to the general manager. They want the, the big position. They've lived alongside Jesus now for a couple of years, and they don't get it. They don't understand His entire ministry and teaching and His coming death is a challenge to worldly concepts of greatness and hierarchy, but even His closest disciples don't see it. And so I guess the question would be for us now 2,000 years later, do we get it? Do we see it? Don't we still see the church squabbling like the disciples Don't we see these competitive and adversarial relationships between different traditions in the church, even between different minor points of doctrine? Don't we tend to love those who reinforce our 
identity and our values, not those that challenge them? Do we as a church erect boundaries and barriers to people trying to get to Jesus, trying to touch him, if you will? What our core value is trying to get to and trying to say is that when you touch in town, it should feel like love. And it's a question for us. Does it feel like love for not only insiders but for outsiders as well? When you encounter the leading edge of in town, do you feel loved? When we face differences inside our church, do we squabble and do we argue and do we divide or do we practice love on its knees like Jesus does? That's what we're getting at with this first core value. Now, what motivates Jesus? Why would he stoop if we believe that he is the Lord, the Messiah, the King of the universe? Why would he, instead of being in a grand palace on a throne with a golden crown, why would he bend the knee? Why would he stoop to distribute and demonstrate love on its knees? Well, we read in verse 1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. His motivation for everything he did was love. This is the image that he wants to imprint upon the brains of his disciples and upon your and mine. This image of a stooping, bowing God who is not above cleaning dung and sewage off of his disciples' feet. It says he loved them to the end, not just signaling duration, but the extent, the amount of love, that he will love them completely to the uttermost. And this is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, is able to talk in Ephesians about the love of God is so wide and so deep and so high and so long that it surpasses knowledge. We can't fully comprehend and know the love of God because it's so different than what we experience. And it's so much more vast than we can possibly know. But we can see it. We do see pictures. We do see actions. And we see this in Jesus' actions because whose feet is he washing? It's his disciples. These are his own. These people who seem to constantly miss the point, the people that are obstinate, the people that are unteachable, the people that seem to be ensconced in an earthly vision of Jesus taking power for them and for their tribe, everyone who will run from him and run away in his time of most desperate need, they will sting him. Yet it does not change his nature to love them, that he loves them to the end. But maybe, even more remarkably, is that John writes this down for a reason. He writes it down for all of those that will come after and weren't witness to this event, that he lets us peer into this as a third party, but also present in some way. That what John wants us to know is that he loves us like this too. That he knows our fickleness and our obstinacy and our weaknesses. He knows how we exclude others even while we coddle and excuse our own faults and our own sin. He loves you. He loves us. Nevertheless, you see, the love of Jesus is the eternal nevertheless over 
our lives. And he says, as I have loved you, as I have said nevertheless over your lives, you are to say this for others. You are to grant this kind of love to others. In Jesus, you see, God stoops down to wash dirty feet. And he demonstrates love on its knees. Knees. He leads with love. And if you're exploring Christianity, the, this is the imprint that I hope is burned into your brain as well. This is the image we want you to consider. What the life and the teaching of Jesus says is that at the center of the universe, there is eternal love that is flowing outward constantly. So not to be too cheesy, but this is God's core value. He leads with love. He includes with love. And in town's mission is that you would encounter Jesus' love. You would encounter the God who kneels to wash dirty feet. And if we're a part of in town, if this is our home base, is that what people sense from you and from us? That nevertheless of love. Well, foot washing has two important aspects in this passage. One is the, the personal and the other is the missional. The first, we see the personal in Peter, and I'm sorry I didn't print all of the text for you, but trust me, I'm, cop- I'm speaking it rightly. I'm reading it. We see this in Peter, the personal aspect of foot washing, why this is so important. Because at first, he declines. He says, of course, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. That's the position of the slave. He gives voice to what everyone else is thinking. What are you doing washing my feet, Jesus? So Jesus says, unless I wash you, Peter, you can have no part in me. And Peter makes a logical but kind of a humorous response. Well, then wash my hands and my face too. I need to be fully clean. But Jesus says, you don't need it. I've already made you clean. You see, this practice, this foot washing event for Jesus is something that depicts an even deeper cleansing, and a deeper washing. Peter is talking about the literal dirt, get it off my hands and off my feet and off my face. But Jesus makes the pronouncement over his soul, his whole being. And he says, you no longer need cleansing, Peter, because I've already made you clean. Now, this is fascinating to me if you think about this, because in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says to the Pharisees, these are the antagonist, right, in the story. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. But that doesn't sound too different from a description of the disciples, right? They're full of self-indulgence. They're full of self-importance and self-promotion. So what's the difference? Well, I think if you read the Gospels, the story goes like this, that unlike the Pharisees, the disciples have entrusted their uncleanness to Jesus. They see it, at least to some degree. They understand that they can't clean the outside of the cup and be fully clean. They need to be made clean, as it were. And we need, as we're reading this, We need to be made to realize that we 
can't make ourselves clean either. We can only be made clean. And when we see, when we acknowledge our sin, and here's a key point, a key hopeful, hopefully a unique thing. When we see our sin and we confess it as we do each and every week, you don't get wrath. You don't get anger. You don't get disappointment from God, but you get His nevertheless. You get His eternal love. You get cleansing. You get to be made new. That's what Peter experienced, and that's, I think, what the difference was between these gnarly disciples who didn't have it all together. The Pharisees did have it all together, socially, culturally, religiously, but who was made clean? It was the people who acknowledged their, their dirt, people who acknowledged their need of cleansing, and that's our challenge. So there's a personal aspect of this event, this foot washing, but also a missional because what Jesus says is, I'm also setting an example for you to follow or love as I have loved you. Notice he doesn't say, I have washed your feet, now wash mine. But he says, I have washed your feet, now go wash others' feet. And from our passage, as I, just as I have loved you, you are to love others. So our core value, this idea of leading with love, isn't just an orientation that we hope people will occasionally bump up against, that people will just randomly show up and they'll get to experience this loving aspect of God. We're going to sort of do our thing over here and maybe people will come and encounter this. But notice it is lead with love. It's assertive. It's invitational. It's inclusive. It's meant to lead people to the transformative love of Jesus. So for those of us who make our home here, who belong here, the question is, are you intentionally sharing your life with others in hopes that they would have an opportunity to encounter this nevertheless, this love of Jesus, that they might be able to have their feet washed figuratively and spiritually? Are you inviting other people into this community? We try really hard here to create a literature and a worship, a liturgy and a worship experience whose leading edge is love for those who are skeptics, who are doubting, who have been hurt by the church, that they know when they come in or at least will learn that they can expect to encounter the, the welcoming love of Jesus and not the exclusionary rhetoric that is often characterizes the church and that they're probably expecting. One of, the, one of the simplest ways to love others is to invite them into a loving community where they can experience the promises of God. But this is where it gets tough because this sort of life is costly, not just inviting people, but living out this sort of love for others because Jesus says, love as I have loved you. This type of love is costly. It's constantly giving away. It's constantly putting itself at risk for the good of other people. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who probably understands this more than most people, he was a Christian pastor in Nazi Germany, and he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Or as Cornel West says in the bulletin I printed for you, love is a form of death. 
And you have to learn how to die in order to learn how to love. Now, this is tricky as we cultivate worship experiences and other events for our church because we want to, on one hand, knock down intentionally barriers to belonging, barriers that would keep people outside. We don't want the entrance of the church, the door of the church, to be, you must die. (laughs) We want people to be able to explore and to belong before they necessarily believe and to work out their doubts and work out their questions inside of the church. So the cost shouldn't be to explore, shouldn't be to die. In other words, in town should have a low wall, that you should be able to see Jesus from the outside, that you shouldn't have to climb over or peer through our theological particularities. You shouldn't have to climb over or peer through our institutional culture. But what you should see from the outside is Jesus kneeling. You should see that at the very center of who in town is, our orientation is the love, the nevertheless, nevertheless of God. That You should be able to see this image of Jesus over and over, giving himself to a fallen humanity. But then as you move in, as you move over that very low wall, what we hope is that you will encounter that call to come and die, to give your life away in a costly way. So there is, as we've said before, a low wall but a very deep well. If our leading edge, if our core identity is love with all of the limits and misconceptions that come along with that term, here's what we hope that we would be like. And we, we got to see this, that what we're trying to argue is that if love is the center of who we are, that though love lowers the wall, it actually deepens the well. So for those who are here and would want us to be, want me to be a little bit more declarative, maybe a little bit more demanding, maybe we should talk about the law a little more. Make it clear what we're against. Well, how are you doing with the law of love? Love is supposedly the summation of the law, that if you are living out of love, then you are fulfilling the rest of the law. Well, how are you doing with that? Probably like me, you're still working on it. The call to love is the summation of the law, and we never get past that one. We are always working on that one. And what could be more radically demanding and welcoming and inclusive at the very same time than the call to bend the knee to wash people's feet? Is there anything more demanding? Is there anything more welcoming than the vision of God kneeling to wash His disciples and wash your feet? Brennan Manning says, the number of people who have fled the church because it's too patient or compassionate is negligible. The number who have fled because they find it too unforgiving is tragic. If we live by the claim, by the truth, that at the center of the universe is radical love, then there is a deep well to explore. And we can lower the wall and lower the barriers for people coming in from the outside. 
And frankly, because of that, we may not be for everyone. This may not be the place that everyone shows up for and is comfortable with. Because if you're looking for a church that reinforces over and over your static theological system, that's probably not us. But if you're looking for a church to push you into redemptive relationships and to trumpet the nevertheless of Jesus, that's our hope. And we think that you found something unique. We think special. So let me leave you with this. Consider just finally and quickly a radical challenge and an enduring promise. The first of all, first of is, is a radical challenge to all of us in this room, including myself, because in verse 8, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no share in me. What he's saying is that no amount of good works, no religious ritual, no spiritual technique can meet our deepest needs for cleansing and forgiveness. We need, all of us, need Jesus to stoop and wash our feet and then mount the cross on our behalf. And so this is a radical challenge to our pride and to our autonomy because what Jesus is saying is that we all are in the same place. We all need cleansing. And without understanding this, that Jesus gladly grants that cleansing, then this call to love others is really just another task, another checkbox, something else that's excruciatingly difficult for us to do until we begin to see that that radical love, that nevertheless has been spoken over our lives, can we begin to do that for others? It's a radical challenge because it says all of us need to be cleansed. But then there's an enduring promise because at the center of the universe is an assertive, an invitational, an inclusive love that never stops flowing, that never runs out. And you see, it may be in our nature as fallen humanity to sting, but it never changes God's nature to love. Only a madman would risk his neck for humanity. You've seen us, right? We're not a healthy lot. We've got some problems. Only a madman would stick his neck out to die for us or a man who is madly in love with you and with me. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would inspire us to lead with love, that our leading edge of our individual lives, of our corporate life here together would be radical, assertive, inclusive, invitational love, that people would long to be a part of this because it is a community that loves them no matter what, that speaks the nevertheless of Jesus over their lives. Lord, let us embody that, not because we have to, but because you embodied it for us, that you gave your very life for us and for your church. We pray that we would give our lives for others. In Jesus' name, amen.